0: Chapter Thirty Seven of Seeing Things at Night. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schneider. Seeing Things at Night by Haywood Brune. A Reviewer's Notebook, Part Two. There are persons to whom a preposition is as inspiring as a trumpet call dangle and on before a dying essayist and he will get up and dash you off something entitled on an old penwiper or on the delights of washing before breakfast it is essential that an essayist be an enthusiast about more things than prepositions they are merely his springboards he ought to be a man who wears his corona on his sleeve for there is no moment of the day or night in which he is safe from the onrush of ideas I once knew a man who was a complete essayist at heart, but a city editor by profession. He came into the office one July afternoon and called me over. As I was walking downtown, he began, I saw a little piece of ice in the middle of Broadway. Write me a funny story about it. The assignment floored me completely. I idled over it for an hour and then reported back that I couldn't see a story in the suggestion. What suggestion? said the city editor the thing had gone from his mind he was of the mould from which great men are made having said of anything let it be done he at once felt not only that it was accomplished but that he had done it himself the matter never came to his mind again at the moment I spoke to him he was already deeply engrossed in a scheme for a story computing the value of all the lobster salads sold in the city of New York, exclusive of Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Staten Island, in a single evening. I have noticed that most essayists are like that. Their enthusiasms are intense, but not of long duration. It is just as well. After all, there probably is no great field for expression in the subject of pinwipers the essayist does it once in a fine spirit of frenzy and then goes on to something else if he is faithful to the one theme there's no telling when he might exhaust his market sometimes i am inclined to distrust the enthusiasm of the essayist being a man much moved to write he comes to be so sensitive that even a puff of wind will propel him into an essay and then sometimes on dead calm days he will begin to write under the pretense that a breath from some far corner of the world has touched him perhaps it has but then again it may be that he too is among the fakers it is time i think writes alpha of the plough in windfalls that someone said a good word for the wasp he is no saint but he is being abused beyond his deserts but why is it time faber has said some hundreds of thousands of good words about wasps but even if he hadn't whence comes the cry of justice for the wasp the wasps themselves haven't complained nor is there much persuasion in what alpha sets down now the point about the wasp he writes is that he doesn't want to sting you of still less moment to the world than the wrongs of the wasp are his motives and intentions Any wasp who stings me will be wasting his time if he lingers around after the deed to explain, I didn't want to do it. Still the whole trick of the essayist is to pick side-alley subjects. Selecting at random from windfalls there are, on a handsome cab, two glasses of milk, on matches and things, few of them, it seems to me, are better than pretty good. That is hardly good enough. The essay is a stunt either the writer can balance his theme on the end of his nose or he can't what with the various new jobs which are being created some enterprising university should found a school of censorship it might most fittingly be a summer school and the college yell without question will be carnal i yell i yell carnal at first we were inclined to look at prohibition with tolerance because it meant a release from all the books which described what would happen to a guinea pig if he were inoculated with bronx cocktails the relief was temporary for we find that it takes just as much time to read the heart-rending accounts of the effect of one drop of nicotine placed on the tongue of a dog in habits that handicap by charles b towns we find the following ailments attributed directly or indirectly to the use of tobacco. Bright's disease, apoplexy, chronic catarrh, headache, heart disease, lassitude, dizziness, low scholarship, small lung capacity, predisposition to alcoholic excess, hardening of the arteries, paralysis of the optic nerve, blindness, acid dyspepsia, insomnia, epilepsy, muscular paralysis, cancer, lack of appetite insanity and loss of moral tone mumps measles, and beriberi are slighted in the present edition there is nothing to be said in its favor writes mr towns save that it gives pleasure it seems he adds in another portion of the book to give one companionship when one has none something to do when one is bored keeps one from feeling hungry when one is hungry and blunts the edge of hardship and worry suppose then that every ailment which mr towns has traced to tobacco actually lies at its door even then is the case for the prohibition of smoking persuasive of course low scholarship is a fearful and humiliating thing but we wonder whether it is more devastating than loneliness it is better we think to have a little lassitude now and then or even a touch of acid dyspepsia than to be without the weed which gives one companionship when one has none. And consider the tremendous testimonial in favor of tobacco which Mr. Townes has written when he says that it gives something to do when one is bored. Although we haven't these statistics for last year yet, we venture to guess that about sixty-three percent of all the people who die in any one year cease living because they are bored boredom is the cause of eighty-five per cent of all actions for divorce it fills our jails nations make war because of it social unrest bedroom forces tardiness rudeness blasphemy crime lies and yawning in the presence of company all arise because of it and so we are disposed to sit defiantly shoulder to shoulder with other smokers and to cry out against the foe who creeps ever closer through the haze, Bring on your lack of appetite. It may be true, as Mr. Towns says, that smoking causes a loss of moral tone, but if the smoker will save his coupons religiously, at the end of a few months he will be able to exchange them for a book on character building. It seems to us that Booth-Talkington belongs at the top, or thereabouts, in american letters we will be surprised and disappointed if penrod does not persist for a century or so and yet much of talkington's work is flawed by a curious failing. almost invariably the novels are carefully thought out to a certain point and then they weaken this point occurs as a rule within a chapter or so of the end the story hangs as the racetrack reporters express it in the last few strides, in Ramsey Mill, Holland, for instance, it seemed to us that Tarkington, after a minute development of a theme, cut it off abruptly. He was, according to our impression, a little tired and anxious to have it over with before he had actually reached the finishing mark. Today we received a story which may provide an explanation. Booth Tarkington says a publisher's note probably uses more lead pencils than any other writer in America, always he has disdained a typewriter. He works at an artist's drawing table, and, the story continues, with a little stock of paper before him, he then sets about the actual business of composition very slowly, very carefully. Every phrase, almost every word, is pondered, balanced, scrutinized before it is permitted to pass as often as not a dozen phrases have been rejected before the final one which seems to readers to come so trippingly has been arrived at individual words are scored out again and again all this makes the slackening of vigor toward the end of a long novel comprehensible though a man begin with a dozen well-sharpened pencils catastrophes are sure to occur in the course of fifty or sixty thousand words Finally the author finds himself with an aching wrist and only one pencil, which has grown a little dull. If he is to add another chapter, he must pause to find a safety razor blade and sharpen it up, and so instead he rounds off the tail while lead remains. On the other hand, we feel certain that Harold Bell Wright composes on a typewriter, pausing only once every twenty-four hours to oil the machine with a little treacle robert w chambers uses an adding machine and theodore dreiser favors an axe man is a machine writes dr david or edison in getting what we want with the directions for use written on his physiognomy which society in general neglects to read through this omission much of the unrest in the world has developed and psychologists have been forced to recognize and attempt to cope with The protests of the psychophysical against unendurable conditions of life. To us these seem true words. It isn't only that society neglects to read, but also that it reads awry. Again and again our legible physiognomy has been taken to mean, shake well before using, when anybody with half an eye ought to know that it says, lay on its side in a cool dry place. We were discussing the education of H. third the other day, and when we were asked where he was to go, of course, we said, the Rand School. No, said the friend who put the question, I don't believe it. By the time H. is ready to go to school, you'll be saying that the Rand School is a reactionary institution and full of snobs. Perhaps, since he is to be a book reviewer, H. should go to a Montessori school. They teach the children to skip. Gerald Cumberland's set Down in Malice reveals the interesting fact that Mrs. Shaw calls him George. Moreover, she is quoted as saying, Don't be absurd, George. There are limits to the success of the most adroit literary advertiser the modern world has known, as we learned from a trip to the British front two years ago. Our conducting officer had been Shaw's guide a few months before, and we were anxious to learn how he had impressed the army oh he was no end of nuisance replied the young officer when i got him out to our mess i found out that he was a vegetarian and i had to hop around and get him eggs and all sorts of truck if gerald cumberland is thirty-one or less tales of a cruel country is an exceedingly promising collection of short stories if on the other hand he has gone beyond that age we see only a doddering literary future for him there are twenty-two stories in tales of a cruel country and three of them are excellent one in fact seems to us a superb short story but many of the other nineteen are rot now they are the sort of rot which a young man may turn out by the bushel and still go on to great things her eyes are pits of darkness a beautiful animal wider than the paper on which this little story is written he pulled his body together sensually his teeth bit more deeply into his lower lip brutally i tore her arms away and flung her from me as a man would fling away a snake that had coiled around him in his sleep that is the sort of rot we mean it has its place in the work of every young writer in fact if he writes honestly there is no skipping this period which must be passed before he is ready to do more important work fortunately there are several easy tests by which one may determine whether a writer is still in his salad days, in which he does as the romains, or whether he is ready to go on and deal with the hardier grasses. Ask him what the word mirror suggests to him, and note whether he replies a man-shaving or a slender woman disrobing. Try him with model, and see whether he replies artist's or tenement. And finally if he can meet your bed immediately with eight hours sleep you may put him down as among those who have finished their literary stint of half-insane gleam of desire her eyes swooped into his and vermouth on purple trays we are particularly interested in the publication of clarence buddington keelan's the little moment of happiness because we made a dramatization of the novel last year which failed of production partly because of the deplorable lapse in morals which mr keelan allows to his hero the story concerns a puritanical young american officer who was stationed in paris during the war and falls in love with a beautiful french girl named andre now andre is not like the girls whom kendall our hero has been accustomed to meet in america a young man love a young girl says Andre, and a young girl love a young man they marry maybe that is well but maybe they do not marry it is expensive to marry then they see each other very often and he gives her money so she can live uh, that is well because they are fidele. naturally we were as much shocked by this doctrine as kendall the hero But since Mr. Kendall's story was largely concerned with the young man's eventual decision to make shift without benefit of clergy, we could see no way open for us to act about the reformation of André's character. As a matter of fact, owing to the exigencies of dramatic action, we were compelled to make the affair much more precipitate than in the book. We gave the hero an order to return to the front. We had off-stage bands of soldiers wandering up and down, singing Madelon in the most heart-rending way. And finally we introduced an air raid to shut off the metro, so that the heroine should have no available means of transportation to go home, even if she desired to leave the apartment of the hero. It was not enough. A. Manager read the play, and at first seemed favorably inclined. Then he began to think it over, and finally he summoned us to a conference suppose you had been an american officer in france during the war he said we accepted the supposition and then suppose after you came home you took your wife or your mother or your fiancée to see this play we nodded again and he paused for dramatic effect at the end of the third act when they found that this girl was going to stay all night in the apartment of this american officer suppose they had turned to you and said Heywood, did you live like that in Paris? "'Or even if they said nothing but just looked at you accusingly, "'what would you say to them?' "'We suggested, "'Isn't it rather stuffy in here? "'Do you mind if I go out to smoke?' "'But that did not seem wholly satisfactory, "'and so our version of the little moment of happiness "'never reached the stage.'" The office force got started on a discussion of what character in fiction each of us would take out to dinner if he had his choice most of the men spoke for becky sharp although there were scattering bids here and there for Thais. but the night editor who had put in a long evening of it said my choice would be little eva why we asked tactfully because she'd probably have to go home early he answered brian kent the hero of harold bell wright's new novel the recreation of brian kent first introduced to us as a defaulting bank clerk. Later he is reformed by the influence of Dear Old Auntie Sue and becomes a novelist. His first book sells so well that in six months he is able to pay back all the money he stole and have something left over. This would seem to prove that Brian was an unusually successful novelist, or again it may merely indicate that he had no real gift for embezzlement it rather seems to us that the distinct failure of political radicalism in america may be explained in part by its devotion to the concrete as opposed to the abstract we are going to make the world over anew at twelve twenty five o'clock p m next thursday says the concrete radical and then thursday comes and it rains and nothing is done about fixing up the world and all the followers of the young radical are disappointed and they go home firmly convinced that the world never will be fixed up. The man who realizes the value of the abstract ideal is shrewder. He says, The world ought to be scrubbed up a lot, and if we can make a start next Thursday sometime after breakfast, we will. But if we can't do it, then we've just got to keep on plugging away, because the job must be done. In other words, the man with abstract ideals makes the job the important thing the concrete man is impressed more by the date of the doing a little abstraction is an excellent thing for the reformer or the revolutionist it provides we should say a sort of reinforced concrete purpose at the worst an abstract ideal is pemmican to carry the voyager through the long nights until the ice begins to break some writers are hardly fair to women but not so julian street in his new novel after thirty He describes marriage as a canoe trip beginning in the rapids of romance, and later he observes presently they come to the first cataract, the birth of their first child, a long, hard portage with the larger portion of the burden on the wife. Generous, we call it. Mr. Seaton's new book of the outdoors, says the Jacket of Woodland Tales, is meant for children of six years and upward but in the belief that mother or father will be active as leader these chapters which are devoted to woodcraft are addressed to the parent who throughout is called the guide so far we have found the business of being a father hard enough without assuming the responsibilities of the guide as well the only piece of woodcraft within our knowledge which we can pass on to h the third comes from harvey o'higgins who says that he can always find his way about in london by remembering that the moss grows on the north side of an englishman this history of wells said our friend seems to me to confirm the story of creation as told in genesis the impression which i gather is that the creator attempted various life forms again and again and each time wasn't satisfied and swept them all away Apparently he was experimenting continually through the ages, until finally he got to me and said that's it, and stopped. "'But you don't know that he stopped,' objected A.W. "'What seems to you a pause is only a fraction of a second in infinity. It seems to me more likely that the Creator is just shaking his head and saying, "'Well, I suppose I'd better go back to the Neanderthal man and start all over again.' a magazine editor is a man who says sit down then knits his brows for five minutes and suddenly brightens as he exclaims why don't you do us a series like mr dooley in his book average americans theodore roosevelt comments on the fact that all classes and conditions of men were to be found in the ranks of the american army waiters chauffeurs lawyers he adds A lieutenant once spoke to me after an action, saying that when he was leading his platoon back from the battle, one of his privates asked him a question. The question was so intelligent and so well thought out that the lieutenant said to him, "'What were you before the war?' The reply was, "'City editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer.' The story does not surprise us. Years before the war we maintained that if ever a catastrophe great enough to shake the world came along a certain appearance of intelligence might be jarred loose even in city editors henry ford so the story goes called upon the editor of his magazine the dearborn independent to ascertain how things were going we're too statistical i'm afraid said the editor of course we can try and get that sort of stuff over by putting it in the form of how many hours it takes to turn out enough end to fords to reach from here to shanghai and back But that sort of thing has been done before. It doesn't take the curse off. What we need is some good live fiction. All right, replied Mr. Ford. Let's have fiction. It's not as easy as all that, objected the young editor. There's very keen competition among all the magazines for the fiction writers, and I'd need a pretty big appropriation to get any of them. Why not get some of the bright young men on the magazine to write us some fiction, suggested Ford. That's not feasible, said the editor. Fiction's a highly specialized product. Nobody on our magazine has the complete equipment to turn out successful fiction. Ah, but that's where efficiency comes in, interrupted Ford triumphantly. Get one of the young men to think up an idea, then let another outline the general structure. A third can do the descriptions and another one the dialogue. And then you, you're the editor, you assemble it. End of Section 37 Recording by Phil Chenever, Baton Rouge, Louisiana End of Seeing Things at Night by Haywood Brune